Welcome to the podcast of the American Psychoanalytic Association. I'm your host, Dr. Gail Saltz. I'm a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist, and this is Psychoanalysis and You. My guest today is Jack Drescher. He is a training and supervising analyst at the William Allenson White Institute, an adjunct professor at the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, and a senior psychoanalytic consultant at the Columbia Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research. He is a 2022 recipient of the Sigourney Award in recognition of his international work in the areas of gender and sexuality. He was most recently the editor of the chapter on gender dysphoria in the DSM-5 text revision and was a member of the work groups revising DSM-5 and the World Health Organization's ICD-11. Welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Gail. Thanks for inviting me. There is a growing politically conservative opposition to treating children and adolescents with the DSM-5 diagnosis of gender dysphoria or ICD-11 diagnosis of gender incongruence, particularly when it comes to puberty blockers and, of course, when it comes to surgery. How do you understand what is happening at this moment in time? There's such a division and there's such uh, vociferousness, shall I say, on both sides. Well, that's a really good question. My first thought was that we're in a particular time and place where most people don't know anything about these kids. This is something new. Most people don't understand uh, what goes into the treatment of these children. These children have been treated for decades now with various approaches that include puberty blockers. Uh, The medications that have been used to do puberty blocking are not experimental. They've been available since 1980. These medications are used, for example, for children who have something called precocious puberty, like a little girl who starts developing puberty at age nine, that's not considered a good thing for the child. So puberty blockers have been used. And if you look at the literature on the use of puberty blockers for precocious puberty, people call this the gold standard. But somehow when it comes to children, uh, sometimes we call them transgender kids, or but you know medically we would say gender dysphoric children, somehow the use of these blockers is stirring up anxiety that this is an experimental treatment, that this is uh, something that's harmful to children. And so my guess is that this is a subject when people don't know anything about it, it generates anxiety. And so a lot of what we're seeing has to do with anxiety about what's the best thing for these kids. So there's the anxiety of the unknown, but one has to believe, certainly as a psychoanalyst, that there is anxiety about the content of this unknown. The fact that these are children who feel that they are not happy with their gender or that they're really another gender. And, you know, in this country, gender sexuality, sex overall as a topic is long been conflicted, shall we say? And is there an anxiety specifically about this issue and one's gender that is is created that is is part of what is the issue? That's a great question. The 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 gender issue does raise a lot of anxiety in a lot of people. 
one way to think about it, this is, I, I think, a psychoanalytic way of thinking about it, is that when we are children, we learn about the world in a bifurcated, binary way. That is, the first things kids learn is how the world works is by dividing things into things like black and white, big and little. I think big and little is like one of the first binaries that kids learn. And the second one is boys and girls. So all of us, regardless of where we come from, red state or blue state, we learn about the differences between the sexes as boy and girl, and we learn about them in, in different ways. And we never, even though when we get older, we might understand that there is more nuance, that not all boys are the same, not all girls are the same. There's a lot of variation in the two categories. Even though we know that, that part of our mind that learned about it early on still exists within us. And so that's part of us when we, we're confronted as adults with something that we don't quite understand that gets into play, gets into operation. We fall back on ways of thinking that we used to think about. Psychoanalysts call this regression, to return to an earlier form of thinking. And the most common example of regression is the, you know, the six-year-old girl whose parents just had a baby and she's upset, so she starts sucking her thumb again, which she hasn't done since she was three. So in a way, when we're confronted with anxiety, sometimes we revert to earlier ways of thinking. And binary black and white thinking is something we've, we've all been through. Do you think this is similar to I mean, less so now, certainly, although maybe there's to some degree a politically been a resurgence, but certainly in, in past decades, reactions to homosexuality. And, you know, you said earlier, well, we, we think of, you know, there are boys and there are girls. And of course, we know in reality, there are many kinds of boys and many kinds of girls. But for some people, that was if boy didn't fit in whatever their concept of boy was supposed to be that was very anxiety-producing and caused a tremendous negativity, I guess I'll say, towards the gay population in general, but in, in additionally, you know, really tried to say that homosexuality was pathology and we could, you know, talk you out of it because it was something that was changeable. Do you think that what is happening now in terms of what should we do regarding transgender individuals, do you think that's at play? That's great. Actually, several people have asked me this question or some version of this question. It's important to remember that in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from its diagnostic manual, which was then the DSM-2. But even though the APA did that, in 73, we did not actually have here in the United States any kind of policy discussion about what that means in terms of the rights of gay people until 20 years later in 1993 when President Clinton tried to end the ban on gays in the military. And then suddenly, 20 years later, you know, well, people couldn't argue it was an illness anymore, so they had to find other arguments as to why gays shouldn't be in the military. And the best argument they could come up with in 1993 was troop cohesion, meaning that the presence of gay people somehow in the military would affect the morale of non-gay people in the military. But when they really got into the details of it, it turns out that the only place where that mattered mostly is where foxholes and submarines. And so if your job- In frightening places. In frightening, frightening places, close quarters, in close quarters. Somehow that was, somehow being in close quarters with a gay person makes a lot of straight people anxious. But in the 1990s, we started seeing the gay marriage 
issues start being talked about. And it's talking about things that used to be forbidden to talk about in public, which changes public perceptions. So 50 years ago, if you ask most Americans, what do you think about gay people getting married? People would say, that's ridiculous, that's disgusting, that's horrible. Today, more than 70% of Americans support gay marriage because we've been having a conversation for at least 30 years since the Don't Ask, Don't Tell discussion in which being gay is not a secret as well as it used to be. And now we're seeing something very similar, I think, that's happening to the transgender community. Mm -hmm. That is, most people don't know a transgender person or they don't know that they know a transgender person. They don't really understand all the, the intricacies. Even when I say transgender people, that's sort of like saying like white people or black people, like as if everybody in the group is the same. There's so many distinctions, individual differences. But the idea is that somehow boys are supposed to be one way, girls are supposed to be another way. We learned that early on. And anybody who violates those early rules of what boys are supposed to do and what girls are supposed to do generates anxiety at the other end, or in some cases, moral outrage. So it seems if we want to talk about a public public parents, parents of the population, that they're divided between, I guess what you're suggesting is knowing because they know someone or their child is affected and they see the suffering that is associated and they empathize with that suffering and they want to help. And parents who maybe don't know and somehow feel made so anxious by these ideas that they experience the attempt on the part of, say, professionals like you to try to help everybody know and understand as making them suffer. So how do you, as a, you know, as a leader, really, in this area, do you have thoughts on how we can psychoanalytically take on a public who is basically having resistance and denial and, you know, is is afraid and wants to therefore create laws to literally forbid people who are suffering from getting treatment? Well, there's a lot of points that you make in there. I'll start with one of the things that we're missing right now is enough education about the subject. This is a subject which I'm increasingly getting invited to talk about in a number of venues. Actually, I've been invited to give a distinguished psychiatrist lecture at the APA in San Francisco this May, and this is the subject I'm going to talk about, the evolving controversies. And I can say that we actually need to educate a lot of healthcare professionals on this issue. It's not just educating the public or politicians and parents. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. It didn't happen before because this was happening quietly, that this was not an issue of public concern until around 2019 in, in Texas when there was a, a lawsuit in which there were parents who were divorced who had twin boys. One of the boys developed gender dysphoria. The mom took the boy to a clinic and they were going to socially transition the child, which means just change the name and maybe change their clothing and have the child present as a girl. The father was opposed, so they went to court. 11 people in a Dallas jury voted to give custody to the mother who wanted to transition the child. The judge vacated the decision because there was a lot of political uproar, but the uproar that it created seemed to work to the benefit of the same kind of groups and organizations that have historically fundraised around anti-gay activities. So now they're finding that, it, you know, here's a group that nobody knows anything about, but it's really, it goes against our way of thinking about gender and mm -hmm. sexuality. 
we have to do something about it. And so the laws that they're passing are not only about laws criminalizing treating a child, anyone under the age of 18, but also laws that are preventing, let's say, a trans boy from being on a boy's sports team. Okay, so that's, you know, the, and, and in Florida, I think they even uh, cut off all Medicaid support for even adults to have it. So it's no longer just about the kids. It's they discovered, oh, here's a group, that, a misunderstood group that people are afraid of or don't know anything about, and it's scary. It runs counter to our ideas about religion, gender, sexuality. Let's get rid of them. Well, that's not going to happen. They're not going away just because you pass laws to make their lives more difficult. That's what people started doing in the 2000s when they kept passing constitutional amendments to ban gay marriage, all of which were overturned by the Supreme Court. So I think we're at the beginning of the phase of a conversation that's a difficult conversation. In, in regard to parents, I get a lot of referrals of parents who just from all over the country who want to just talk about a child who has come out. These are the parents who want to be supportive of their children. You should know that not all parents want to be supportive of their children. Studies show that one-third of all homeless youth are LGBT, which means these kids get thrown out of their homes or they have to run away from their homes. So parents, you know, parents are worried. There are parents whose children have gone to see a, a gender specialist who they feel was very quick in telling the child that they should transition. The parents don't like that. They say after one or two visits, someone is suggesting hormones or puberty blockers. You know, I'm a psychoanalyst. Psychoanalysts don't believe in making fast life choices. You know, what the joke in psychoanalysis is, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> so, yes. so the question then becomes, yes, of course you want evaluations. You want to be clear that this is something that you know is the right thing to do. You want someone who has ex real expertise in the subject. There are a lot of people out there who claim to be experts who may not be as expert as they think. You want someone who is thoughtful, but you want to consider the possibility that it could go one way or the other, that it is possible for a child to change their mind, but some children don't change their mind. And what we're challenged with is trying to do the right thing on an individual basis through many gender specialty clinics work in teams, so they don't make these decisions lightly. So that is really something, again, it's hard to explain. It's not an easy thing to do. Are there clinical guidelines for practitioners so that they can understand the kind of timeline they should be on to, as you said, the child who might change their mind or the child who might not or the degree of suffering that they're enduring? There is an international organization called the World Professional Association for Transgender Health called WPATH. They publish guidelines every few years. The eighth edition of their gu guidelines just came out last year with some controversy uh, because they actually don't really talk about how long it should be. You know, they, that, they, there is not that. And, and, and I think what's really important here is that I don't think this is a job for amateurs. I mean, I often get people saying, oh, I have this wonderful new patient. You know, they know nothing about it, about the subject. And, they, you know, and, and what you should be doing is you should be sending that person to someone who knows something about the subject. Or if you want to get supervision and consultation so that you know what you're doing. This is the thing that I've been aware of. I'm not a child psychiatrist nor a child psychoanalyst. I haven't treated children this young myself, but I became interested in this subject starting with my work in DSM-5 in 2008 because people were talking about whether there should even be a childhood diagnosis. 
So, so I've done a lot of research in this area. I've invited people who work with these children to explain and published articles and edit articles that they wrote about how they treat their kids so I could learn more about this. It's a long process to learn more about this. And there's a part of me when I'm lecturing to mental health professionals that says, you know, I don't think any doctor should have an opinion on this subject unless they've studied some of the things that I've studied. It's not something to take lightly. So in terms of studying and acquiring the knowledge base, psychoanalysts have traditionally been later to the party, as it were, Um, certainly if we're talking about how late they came to understand and apologize, frankly, for their earlier history and in their take on homosexuality. And conservative psychoanalytic voices even today are saying, some of them, the only way to treat gender dysphoria is to talk to them until they've changed their mind, which was also the conservative approach to homosexuality for a long time. So how do you, as a psychoanalyst, respond to those concerns on the part of psychoanalysts? Yes. Well, I've been invited to publish some of my responses to psychoanalysts who believe that in England. uh, Recently, I just had a piece published in Italy today in La Repubblica uh, based on a, a blog that I wrote. I think the problem for psychoanalysts, not all psychoanalysts, but you know, psychoanalysts are in many ways are just like everybody else. You know, everybody has their belief systems, and it's not always easy if somebody has a belief system to change their minds. That's true of our patients, and that's true of our colleagues. And, and frankly, as someone who speaks on this on, on this very controversial subject, I've discovered that my audiences could be divided into three parts, not necessarily equal parts. And there are the people who agree with me all the time, and there are people who will never agree with me. And then there's what I call the persuadable middle. And so I can only speak to psychoanalysts in the persuadable middle that this is a complicated subject. It may challenge some of your thinking because you've not learned anything in your formal training that has prepared you to think about the complexity of this subject. I wouldn't call it rocket science. I learned about it, and I'm not a rocket scientist. So I think it's possible to learn more about it, but there has to be a willingness to learn. I think the idea that some analysts have that you just talk to the child until they change their mind, that might work with some kids, you know, but it's not going to work with all of them. And so what you're doing when you decide to go in that direction is you're privileging the what we would call the cisgender kids, the kids who will not become transgender, over the transgender kids. That is, you know, you're making a decision, since you're not individualizing your approach, that some kids deserve to be protected, whereas you don't care what happens to the other kids. And that's a an ethical problem. I've served on ethics committees of the APA, and you know, and that's the ethical issue that I think is not being discussed openly. That we, you know, we have to try and find the best ways so that all the kids, the ones who benefit from treatment, the ones who might not need that kind of transition treatment, that they're evaluated. Everybody gets what's best for them. So, as a practitioner, what would you say to parents and and policymakers who are concerned that? If you do an intervention that has ramifications, and and not necessarily even a surgical intervention, although it could be a surgical intervention, but even a puberty blocking mm-hmm. intervention mm-hmm. that has ramifications, how do you make sure that you are not doing that with a child who ultimately does or would be the decider that in fact they are cisgender and they are going through some other type of unconscious or conscious 
issue that is is bearing and presenting in this way. So I, again, I would say this is why you need really specialized people who who are not making it up as they go along, who have seen you know clinics where they've seen many children, they know, they have a better sense of who will do better with transition and who will not. There is no perfect system in our medical care. There is not one surgical or medical procedure that is currently being used in the United States for any kind of treatment that doesn't have people who regret the treatment. So the children uh, or young people who have been changing their minds are being called detransitioners, mm -hmm. and they are being presented as people who were harmed, and they may have been harmed you know, because uh, it didn't work out for them. But the existence of people who have regrets doesn't mean that there aren't people who benefited from treatment. So you don't stop any medical treatment just because somebody had a bad outcome. If other people are having a good outcome, what you try and do is refine your selection criteria so that you make fewer mistakes. And that's what's not happening. The research to do that is not being done because what we're seeing, at least again in red states, is a call for no treatment at all. And so it's not about research to how you know find a better way to do it, but don't do it at all. And there are psychoanalysts who I think don't believe that gender dysphoria is a thing. That I mean, they, they they don't think that this is a real thing, and therefore they also say, let's just talk to the kids. There was a uh, discussion at the American Psychiatric Meeting of a group of therapists who are opposed to uh, any kind of transition, and so. They said they don't think anybody should get any medical intervention like hormones until they're an adult. And so I said, okay, but based on what I've been reading for people who oppose treatment, do you think when does adulthood begin? 18, 21, 25? And they refuse to answer the question. So that just really means they don't really believe in that at all. And so that, you know, that to me is an ideological position. And and in that position, what what do you think the resistance to understanding that they're that there may actually be a biological-based gender dysphoria. What is the, I mean, one would hope in a practitioner, we're not talking about a religious belief. I mean, I know you said people come with these beliefs, but what do you think is the, as a treater of someone who is suffering, what is the resistance to believing that this could be the case? I don't know the answer per se because, you know, don't analyze people you actually haven't analyzed. Fair. All right. I don't, I don't know for sure. I mean, in terms of someone, I've t like I know a mom who's a clinical psychologist whose daughter wanted to transition at 17. And I, she, I said, and, you know, she, she wanted to take a gap year. And, and I said, well, who's going to support her? So uh, she said, well, we are. I said, well, I said, you know, I mean, you're the mom. I mean, you know, you, you have to decide what you will and what you will not support. And that child, you know, uh, did not transition. She may transition later in life, I don't know, but she didn't transition. Mom asserted her parental authority, which is fine. But there's sort of like, there are parents whose kids have been to these gender therapists who see them once or twice and make recommendations. They feel their child is being, you know, subject to an ideological position. That is, they're talking about ideology on what I call the left wing of these discussions. But there's ideology on both wings of the discussion. And one of the hardest things in having this discussion is how to place yourself, is what I try to do, place yourself so that you're neither on the left nor the right. It's a very precarious place to walk. No good deed goes unpunished. It's trying to take the politics or the ideology out of where it frankly never belonged in the in the treatment room uh, 
Well, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. The personal is political and vice versa. So it's yes. hard to take politics out of it. But how do you how do you find a way? But it's more like being a diplomat. You know, that diplomats are able to talk to both sides, you know, who seem to have irreconcilable differences. How do you find common ground? The common ground on the left and right is this issue is both sides pre present themselves as concerned about children. And so, yes, but, but let's be concerned about all the children. In that vein, can you speak to the consequences? We know that people who suffer with gender dysphoria, as is in the name, often struggle with dysphoria, intense dysphoria, depression, and even death by suicide. But the available information on the concern about, for example, suicide or transitioning and what happens to depression and thoughts of suicide seems a little murky. Well, I'm not a big fan of the argument on the left that says if you don't go along with your child's you know, desire to transition, they're going to kill themselves. That, that seems to me that's not a very persuasive way to speak to educated people about what's going on because we know as psychiatrists and psychoanalysts that there are a lot of kids that make threats that they don't mean, you know, and again, there you also have the job if it comes into professional room, consulting room, to distinguish between the child who actually is at risk for hurting themselves or not. So the issue, I think, you know, to, to try and turn this into a scare tactic way to persuade people is not very useful in my opinion. I think the issue is really, yes, it's true that many adult trans people do report, you know, histories of wanting to hurt themselves when they were younger. So it's not an uncommon feeling. The same thing is true of some gay people that they do, that not being accepted, having to hide, not being yourself. These are social stresses that can affect people's function. But I think the issue is that you want to do what's best for your child. Uh, I think most parents, at least the ones that I meet, Unfortunately, you don't want to do what's best for their child. What's best for their child is not immediately apparent at the time the child starts raising questions about their identity. And so you want to be thoughtful and open-minded enough to go in whatever direction the child is going to lead as long as it's not harmful to the child. Now, many people say what's harmful to the child varies, you know, like just giving a child any medication is harmful to the child. Well, that's not true if your child has pneumonia. And so there are sometimes that medic medication is the right thing to do. So we've spoken for a moment about conservative psychoanalysts or psychoanalysts who don't agree that this actually is an issue, gender dysphoria, or feel that it is, but it should be talked about. Are there any advantages, you think, that psychoanalysts in particular, because of their training and understanding of the concepts, bring? to the understanding of gender dysphoria and alleviating the suffering of children and, and families and adults that are, are dealing with it? That's a good question. So I'll free associate, <laughs> if I may, to a book chapter that I've just not finished yet. I'm almost finished on uh, basically on gender and sexuality in a post-binary world for a textbook of psychoanalysis. And I kind of trying to document the history starting with Freud about psychoanalytic thinking about gender and sexuality and the kind of confusion that used to take place around Freud's time was very common to equate a sexual orientation with a gender identity. 
So the idea was the reason gay men were interested in men is because they were identified with their mothers. It's just like they had a female trait inside them. And the same lesbians were identified with their fathers, so they had a male trait inside them. But the distinction between a gender identity, whether I, how I think of myself as male, female, or some other gender, and a sexual orientation, whether I'm attracted to men, women, or some other gender, really don't get made in the history of science until the middle of the 20th century. So, so psychoanalytic theories have not kept up very well with those distinctions, even though Robert Stoller was the psychoanalyst who first coined the term gender identity in a psychoanalytic journal. He understood that distinction, and he was very helpful in making that distinction. But we don't really have good theories as to what causes it. And I'm a big believer that two people talking in a room are not going to find out what caused a person's gender dysphoria. They're not going to find out what caused a person to be gay just by talking in a room. It's just conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's conversation that we call co-constructed narratives. Two people in a room come up with a story that works for the two of them mm -hmm. and hopefully works for the people they interact with. So there's nothing, but so psychoanalysts, but what is good about psychoanalysis, and I guess this is my own psychoanalytic journey, is psychoanalysis has taught me how to think about complex subjects. Uh, to quote my friend, mentor, Susan Coates, she says, you know, it's all about holding complexity to be able to think about lots of things going on at the same time as a way to deal with a complicated subject. And this is one of those subjects that requires holding complexity, which is why my slide presentations are so long with so many different areas that go into it. So the idea that psychoanalysts can and are well-equipped, really, to sit with a patient, tolerate the discomfort, pain that patient may be going through, the struggle to figure out identity, the acceptance of ambivalence about an identity. These are things that, you know, I think they don't happen in CBT. You know, they are they are <laughs> they are psychoanalytic <laughs> ideas. Right. And are those things that really could be beneficial to the person struggling with gender dysphoria. I started laughing thinking about treating gender dysphoria with 10 sessions of CBT. Right. Yes, I mean, I think, uh, so we, we, in psychoanalysis, we have the concept of countertransference, which is basically the psychoanalyst or the therapist's personal reactions to the things they're hearing the patient talk about. And it's very common for some of the things that patients talk about to make the doctor anxious or the therapist anxious because it may be a traumatic experience that the person has had. It might be an unpleasant thought that reminds the therapist of something in their own past and background that never got resolved for them. Patient brings it out. And in a way, one of the things that happens a lot is that we're all trained from an early age to police gender. That is, if you ask any child, you know, boys should do this, girls should do that. You're an adult, you're walking out of the restroom in the airport, and you see somebody of a different gender walking into the wrong restroom, you'll tell them usually, because we all do that. We've all learned how to police gender. And psychotherapists can sometimes find themselves when they're working with a child who is struggling to figure out what their gender identity is, they will police gender. Some people believe, I think analysts, some of these conservative analysts believe, is that your genitals determine what your gender is, which is what happens when the child is born. They take a look at the genitals and they make it a public announcement, boy or girl, or it may even happen before you're born nowadays, they mm -hmm. with an ultrasound. 
But that is true for most people. For most people, our gender identities align with our genitals, but there are exceptions, not just in the transgender community, but in the intersex community. And so it's learning about the exceptions that is very helpful. And it certainly would be helpful if more analysts learned about the exceptions, and so they would stop trying to push their patients in one direction or another. Wittingly or unwittingly. Wittingly or unwittingly, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. But it's a hard thing to do because we just do it so spontaneously, and it has a lot of social support to do that. All of these laws are about trying to rigidify rules of gender in law. And it does seem that it's sort of also devoid not only of research and literature about gender dysphoria, but also about parents, you know, treating children who may turn out to be heteronormative and, you know, quite gender happy, but as babies and young children in certain ways, assigning them certain characteristics and some of which prove to be problematic for that child or inhibit development of certain characteristics for that child. You know, there are parents who want their child to go to medical school. <laughs> there are <laughs> right. parents who want their child to right. become priests. There are parents who want their child but to- But even just talking about basic things like how people greet your baby and therefore your baby's you know, response to being greeted. There is research on you know, how that might be treated differently how you should greet their girl baby versus their boy baby. I believe there's a lot of research about the way people interact differently with yes. the genders of male and female. That, yes. that's, that, I think, is fairly well documented. But it certainly seems as though, well, I guess back to your original point, that if, if more of the public, parents and children, understood how rooted our ideas are about the black and white of boys and girls their genitals, their gender feelings, their characteristics, and made more allowances for the flexibility of unusual circumstances, but even more usual circumstances, it would be helpful. There are parents who would like a stereotypical boy or girl, you know, to say he's a real boy is a compliment, you know, or even say a real girl, you know, is a compliment, you know, so there's a, there is an exaltation of gender stereotypes within the culture, not, not with everybody, but with some people. And some people, even in conservative backgrounds, are very comfortable with their child's atypical behaviors. It's not, not everybody is, you know, I don't want to get, I don't want to put left or right, you know, in a bucket and say everybody's the same because it's not this, this case. You know, I'm a big believer as a psychoanalyst in learning more about yourself and others. And this is something that I think people need to learn more about in themselves, their own opinions and where they come from and what the opinions of others are. And to not demonize the opinions that you disagree with, but to engage in conversation about, and I can see a flaw in your argument, that doesn't mean I have to knife you. Well, let's hope that there are some politicians and other people responsible for policy listening in. That would be good. That would, that would be helpful, not just in this area, but in all areas. It would yes. be helpful if we learned to be more civil and speak to each other about our differences without demonizing people we disagree with. I have to say that. Here, here. Thank you, Dr. Jack Drescher, for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And now for some Freudian quickies. You sent in your questions for an analyst, and I grabbed an analyst with an answer. Many clinicians since the pandemic have moved to teletherapy. How do you think it's affected 
therapy? Wow, that's a question. Um, I think the imperfect synchronicity of sound online in the sense that you don't have that natural capacity to talk over and with another person at a linguistic level is radically changing the experience in ways we're only beginning to understand. And in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, oftentimes because of teletherapy, patients are seeing more of the analyst's environment and analysts are seeing more of the patient's environment. How do you think that's affecting therapy? I think it's pushing us forward into creative new ways of being as analysts, which are probably overdue. I'm in my 50s and I'm probably an intermediate generation in that my teachers never even dealt with email and my patients are fully native in the land of technology. And I think the capacity for total privacy in the sense of isolation is absolutely impossible in the social media age. So being able to view your patient's room or them being able to see your office or hear your dog or your kid, you know, rush through the door because they don't understand you're working is human, interesting, and probably overdue. I think the biggest way in which it has changed my therapy is that I've had to adapt my technique. Before, I used to practice distance remote sessions, but to patients who would be in another country, and it was a very few, maybe one or two. And I used just the phone, uh, which I, I, I liked. I, I still like to call it the, the virtual couch. But I've also um, started to use the camera more with certain patients who there are many like deprivations when you're remote the rest of the senses that are involved. I've found that the camera, which I, by the way, I didn't like having sessions via camera, uh, but I, I've adapted to it and, and, I, and I've adapted my technique because there is a really big difference with the camera because they can see you so close. They can see, in, and you can see yourself. And then you have your image of yourself right there mediating. So that has been a challenge and also trying to to forget that image of myself and maybe sometimes just look away so that I can think my patients without this very, very, very close visual. If you have a question, really any question for a psychoanalyst, please send it to APSAPodcast at gmail.com and we will try to feature it in a future Freudian quickie. For more information about the American Psychoanalytic Association, go to www.apsa.org. Till next time. Thank you for listening in today. Here at Psychoanalysis and You, and we at the American Psychoanalytic Institute, hope to introduce you to the many ways psychoanalytic thought affects the world around us, and especially you. Please leave any comments and requests for us at APSAPodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you found this episode useful, please share this podcast with a friend or colleague, and we will be back next month with another episode 
of psychoanalysis and you.